Well, we just spent a couple of months talking about the doctrine of Scripture, and I thought it would be useful and encouraging to spend some time learning about how we got our Bible, how we got from a bunch of people thousands of years ago to what we have in our hands today. Now, there are, of course, are challenges from the world. How can you believe this ancient book? It's been corrupted. It's changed so much. It's just a bunch of superstitious people from times past who aren't nearly as sophisticated as we are. And we'd expect that from the world, and we've always seen challenges to God's word from the world. But it's even worse we see challenges from inside the church. You might even remember when I started this series on the doctrine of scripture, I the reason I thought to bring it up again, I taught this 12 or 13 years ago, but I was bringing it up again because uh, of some things that Andy Stanley had said, and you may know Andy Stanley, you recognize the name, he's the son of Charles Stanley, and Andy Stanley is the pastor of a megachurch in Georgia. He made some comments a few years ago, and he cast doubts in the Bible in some ways we would associate with liberals of the 20th century. And he said something like this about those who grew up in church, quote, the Bible was presented to us as a book, which it is not, because it was all presented as one holistic thing, which it is not, because we never even understood where the Bible came from. It was a house of cards. So all someone had to do was come along and pull away a couple of the pieces, a couple of the foundational pieces, and suddenly the whole thing comes tumbling down. And so we went off to college and discovered that even though it, the Bible, was sacred, it wasn't scientific. Even though it was something to appreciate, it wasn't necessarily something that was factual. And even though there were stories in here, that is the Bible, that were inspirational, they weren't necessarily true. And then we experienced life, and there began to be more and more distance and more and more daylight between what we experienced and what we grew up believing. And more recently, he tweeted, The Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And I think many of you have played that game, Jenga. You ever played that? you got the the blocks and you stack them up and you, you pull the different ones out and the last one to pull one out and the whole thing comes collapsing is, is the loser. And in this view, that's sort of how we view the Bible, is we, we have this edifice we've constructed about the, the Bible's truthfulness, accuracy, historicity, all these things, but really it's a Jenga tower, and once you start pulling pieces out, then the whole thing will come collapsing down. And the implication from Andy Stanley and others like him is if we really understood the background of the Bible, it would make us less confident, so we just need to cling to Jesus. But really, if you look how God has transmitted and preserved his word, it should make you more confident. More confident, not less. And so we can't go through everything today, but over the course of the next few months or so, I plan to cover several topics. First of all, how the books of the Old and New Testaments came to be regarded as God's word. And then how the text of scripture was handed down to us over the centuries. And then finally for those of us in the English-speaking world, how we got our English Bibles. And so I hope to answer questions like how we got 66 books in our Bible and how we know there should be 66 and no more, no less. You may even ask yourself, is it possible that there might be other 
yet undiscovered Bible books out there. And we'll talk about that as well in days to come. So that's the basic plan, how we got our Bible. But let's start fundamentally with what's called the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture, not, not a canon like the, the, uh, the artillery with uh, C-A-N-N-O-N, but canon, C-A-N-O-N. The definition of the canon of Scripture comes from a term that originally refers to a measuring rod, like a ruler, and then it came to refer to a standard and then an authoritative list. So the canon term is what we use to describe which books are recognized as Holy Scripture, as God's Word. And it is, of course, an important discussion. How do we know which words are from God? Listen to Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So we have we want to have God's word, not remove from it, not add to it. Even the closing books of the Bible, Revelation 22, this is really the last warning in Scripture, and it says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So that's a severe warning. Don't add or take away from what God has said. The theologian Wayne Grudem said this, To add or to subtract from God's words would be to prevent God's people from obeying him fully, for commands that were subtracted would not be known to the people, and words that were added might require extra things of the people which God had not commanded. The precise determination of the extent of the canon of Scripture, again, the, the which books are the, the ones that belong in God's word, is therefore of the utmost importance. If we are to trust and obey God absolutely, we must have a collection of words that we are certain are God's own words to us. If there are any sections of Scripture about which we have doubts, whether they are God's words or not, we will not consider them to have absolute divine authority. We will not trust them as much as we would trust God himself. So every time Bible teachers say, open your Bibles to such and such, and every time you turn to Scripture for spiritual sustenance, the issue of the canon is assumed. If you didn't believe the words were God's words, without the confidence that these words are part of the canon, a product of God's inspiration, they might as well be just another inspirational book. I heard a story the other day about a, a man, a well-known celebrity, who decided he was going to write his uh, a book about what he thinks is a how, how we have to live our lives. It's sort of religious guidance for people. And I think we've already got that, don't we? Why do we need somebody else's views of these things? God has given his word to us. And so we look at God's word and we say, this is his word. And other books, while they may be helpful, are not God's word. And so we stand upon God's word alone. Well, so we have this idea of the canon of scripture that, again, is what we see to be the revealed word of God to us in its fullness, not adding or subtracting. Well, let's look now at the Old Testament canon, the Old Testament canon. 
at the time of Christ, there was something called scripture. And we see that word a lot. The scriptures say this. It's a recognized group of writings considered the word of God. So let's look at a few New Testament references to Old Testament scriptures and see how Jesus and others automatically appeal to it as God's authoritative word. Uh, Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees. Remember, they say there's no resurrection. They pose this story to Jesus that a man marries a woman, and, and then he dies, and the, his brothers marry her. And So in the resurrection, which one of these men were really her husband? For Jesus says, verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And God spoke these things in the scriptures. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So when Jesus talks about the scriptures in verse 29, it's not a body of text that is unknown to these people. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, they could point to the scriptures. They would go to the synagogue and see the scriptures there. It wasn't a mysterious thing. The scriptures meant something that was concrete to the people of Jesus' day. Look at Luke 24. Luke 24. Verse 27, this is after the resurrection. And Jesus is walking with some disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then Jesus says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So we have this idea of Moses and the prophets. It's all the scriptures. Verse 32, they said to one another, these are the disciples, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking on the ro- to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And then verse 45, Jesus is talking to uh, a bigger group of disciples, and it says, he opened their mind minds to, dis- to understand the scriptures. In fact, you go back to the previous verse. These are my words which I s- spoke to you when I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So the scriptures, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And these scriptures make predictions about who the Messiah was going to be, and Jesus fulfilled those things. So again, Jesus is speaking of the scriptures, something well known to the disciples, the Pharisees, Sadducees, any any ordinary Jew in the time of Christ would know what the scriptures refer to. Look at John chapter 10. Again, looking at Jesus' view of the scriptures in particular here. John 10, verse 35. John 10, verse 35. And we won't get into the specific situation here very much. The Jews are want to stone Jesus for saying, I and the Father are one, verse 30. Um, and Jesus makes an argument from the Psalms. Has it not been written in your law, verse 34, I say you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. So here we have the word of God, and Jesus is referring here to what? Verse 34, where is he quoting from, do you know? 
If you look at your marginal note, Psalm 82. So Jesus quotes the Psalms, verse 34, and he says, this Psalm is the Word of God, this Psalm is the Scripture. So Jesus here equates the Word of God with the Scripture, or the writings, is the, the Greek term there. Yeah? Yeah, and we'll look at that in a minute. What are the different categories that that Jesus uses and, and others use? Of you know, we talk about the Old and New Testaments. The Jews had their other their own way of referring to the Old Testament and their different categories, different sections. So Jesus uses the term "word of God" and "scripture" of the same writings, and he says this scripture cannot be broken. <clears throat> well, let, let's look at the Book of Acts and see what the <clears throat> disciples and others said about. The Word of God of the Scriptures. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1. And this is when they're trying to figure out what to do now. Jesus has gone to heaven. They have the 12 minus 1 because Judas has hanged himself. They need to replace Judas. And so Peter says, verse 16, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And then he later on he quotes the Psalms. And so listen to how Peter talks about the Scripture. And the Scripture is spoken by the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So Peter knows what the Scripture is. He also believes the Scripture was breathed by the Holy Spirit. It was foretold by the Spirit through the human instrument, David. So that's Peter's view of the Scriptures, his understanding of the Scriptures. Acts chapter 8, verse 32. We have the Ethiopian eunuch met by Philip. And Philip is, as he he meets this man, he's reading a portion of Isaiah 53. And it says, verse 32, Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. Then he quotes Isaiah 53. And so we, we have this scripture that this eunuch had that Philip could explain to him. Again, this is the scriptures, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So the scriptures is this body of writings from God himself that, among other things, most uh, importantly, reveals Jesus Christ. So that's how Luke saw the scriptures. Uh, look at verse 17. That is, as Luke describes what the, the what Philip is doing here as opening up the scriptures to this man. Acts 17, verse 2. Acts 17. Paul, as he often does, as he travels around the world at this time, he, he visits for synagogues where the people would know the scriptures. They would know what... The uh, the prophecies were about the Messiah, and so he would use that as a launching pad to to gain a foothold of the gospel in a particular location among the Jews. Verse two says in Thessalonica, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for, for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, "This Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ." 
And we could also look down at, at verse 11 when the Bereans, it says they received Paul's word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So these Jews in Thessalonica uh, and other places Paul traveled in Berea, they had the scriptures in their synagogues. They knew what the scriptures were. They had this canon. And Paul didn't come in and say, I have a new revelation to you. I have this new word from God. He said, we have the scriptures. You have these scriptures here in, in these these boxes, these, these compartments in your synagogue. Bring them out, and I will explain to you from these scriptures who Jesus Christ is. One other person we'll look at here, Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, verse 24. We meet a man named Apollos. A Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. He knew what we would call now the Old Testament. He knew these words of, of Moses, the prophets, and he was mighty in them. And then verse 28, skipping quite a bit here, it says, He, Apollos, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So the ground of their teaching about Jesus was in the Old Testament scriptures. They weren't, it wasn't some brand new thing, but it was grounded in the scriptures that the, the Jews knew and presumably loved. Let's look at just one portion of Paul's epistles. In fact, the very beginning, Romans 1, verse 2. But I'll just start at verse 1 to get the beginning of the sentence here. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so we have here, again, Paul not giving some new thing, but building on the Scriptures that have already been established, that have already been given, Paul is seeing the promise through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, and it's about Jesus Christ, it says, verse 3. So, we have this scripture. It was known by Jesus. It was known by Peter. It was known by Luke, Paul, Apollos. All these men knew the word of God was given to them by God through Moses and the prophets. And they had that in their hands. Well, if not in their hands, because they didn't have that many copies of it, at least it was in their synagogue. They knew what it was. They had this canon, this measure of what was scripture and what was not. And we touched on this earlier, but... We have these categories in the Old Testament canon. That is, as we have sections of different books, we have Old and New Testaments. The Jews referred to their scriptures with uh, different categories. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. And Jesus here says, Do not think that I came to abolish what? Remember, without looking, the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, come to abolish, but to fulfill. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he mentions the commandments, the least of the commandments in verse 19. So this, these are the commandments from God to you. We have the law and the prophets. They were given to you and they must be obeyed by you. Turn over a couple of chapters to Matthew 7. Verse 12, Jesus says, giving the golden rule, 
and everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. And Jesus is saying here, this summarizes the Old Testament teaching. This is the law and the prophets to treat people in the same way you yourself want to be treated. Look further in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, a little bit later than we were looking at before. Matthew 22 verse 36. And it says, verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And so he's speaking there specifically of the law. He's a lawyer. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is a great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Referring to, again, the whole Old Testament scriptures that they, they knew well. The greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God, to love your neighbor as yourself, that is, is what undergirds the whole law and the prophets, the whole, what we would call, again, the Old Testament. We already looked at Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus mentions, uh, or it says that Jesus explained to them from the law and the prophets in the Psalms. So generally we see the law and the prophets, but sometimes if you wanted to be a little more um, descriptive, you could say the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Look at John 145. John 145. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Again, a, a twofold um, description of the law as the law and the prophets. The law being associated with Moses and the prophets being everything else, in effect. And we want to be careful not think of prophets just as those who proclaim the future, foretell the future, but in the, the Jewish idea here, the, the law and the prophets refers to Moses' law, and then the prophets would be everything besides the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Bible. So we, we might not think of, let's say, um, certain portions of the scriptures like First and Second Chronicles as prophetic as such. It would be considered as one of the prophets in that group of the prophets by the Jews. Acts chapter 13, we get to the... Yeah, a lot of the, well, a lot, some of the Old Testament books, we have, don't have any idea who wrote them. <clears throat> In fact, <clears throat> Joshua, Joshua could have written some, uh, maybe all of it, or most of it. Um, we don't know for sure that Samuel wrote First and Second Samuel. We, we think that Ezra may have wrote, have written the, the Chronicles. Um, Ezra may have written, Ezra and Nehemiah had, has, maybe wrote some of it. We don't really know who actually physically sat down and wrote these things. In some cases, we have, 
compilations. I, I, I don't think, I would say this very carefully, I don't, I don't think that Moses actually wrote the book of Genesis, all of it. He wrote it, but he got sources, right? He wasn't there when Adam and Eve were created. So he had probably some ancient texts or ancient stories that he wrote down himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit to do that. But sometimes the biblical writers would use sources for the material. We even see that in some cases. Like, like Luke got material from other people when he wrote his Gospels. So if you were to actually be able to trace who put pen to paper for different portions of the Old Testament or New Testament, you can't always say that. It makes it difficult, but we, we trust that God, whoever the author was, whether we know it or not, God was inspiring that, that person in the process of doing so. And we'll look more about that process in weeks to come, too. Acts 13, we get to the practice of the early church as well as the the Jewish uh, practice at the time, because remember that the church was an outgrowth in many ways of what happened in the synagogues. Acts 13, we see in verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, by the way, they're in a synagogue. It says verse 14. On Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word or expectation for the people, say it. And then Paul preaches the gospel. We have here a view into synagogue life back then. Part of the, the, the order of service, you might say, is they would read from the law, that is, they would read part of Moses' writings, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then they read from the prophets, so everything after Deuteronomy to the end. So that's how they would conduct their services, and then they would have, in some cases, a traveling rabbi, in this case, be invited to speak. If you have an exhortation, a word for the people, say it, verse 15. Let's look at Acts 24, verse 14. Acts 24, you know, just getting an idea of these writings of the Old Testament scriptures as being from the Law and the Prophets. Acts 24, verse 14. Paul here is giving his testimony before Felix, and he says, This I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the Law and that is written in the Prophets. And then one last verse in Acts 28, verse 23. They set a day for Paul. They came to him at his lodging in large numbers. This is while he's in Rome. He was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. So Paul here is opening the scriptures, Moses' law, and, and the rest of the scriptures, talking about the Messiah who is to come. And then he even mentions in verse 25, Paul says, the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. <clears throat> so we have Paul opening the law, opening the prophets, and then saying these prophets, this law, is spoken through the prophets, through Moses, 
by the Holy Spirit. One last verse on this idea of the law and the prophets, Romans three twenty one. Paul here says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So that is God's word, God's scripture, the law and the prophets both speak of the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe and so forth. So it is the, the testimony of the scriptures, the testimony of the law and the prophets. If you want to be a little more specific, you can mention the Psalms as well. But those are the, category, the main broad categories of God's word as seen by the Jews of Jesus' day and the, the Apostles' day. Now, we have some references in God's word itself to canonical writings. Again, these are the writings that are part of God's word, are transmitted to us. Some of the most famous, of course, are the Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus 32. Exodus 32 Verses 15 and 16. <clears throat> Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets, the testimony in his hands, <clears throat> tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. This is as Moses is coming down from the mountain, and the people are worshiping the golden calf down below, and Moses will soon smash those those tablets on which are written the, the law of God. Turn over to chapter 34, verse 27. The Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and he did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So again, we have this new set of tablets, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words from God, written by God, given to Moses, and that was the the canon they had, part of the canon. This is God's word given to the people of Israel. Go back to Exodus 24, more broad than just the Ten Commandments. There were many other commandments given by God to the people, and we don't have time to talk about that in much detail, but listen to Exodus 24, verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. Now you could go back and, and look at the previous chapters in Exodus about the feasts and various laws, uh, Sabbath and so forth. Those laws, the first, uh, the, the chapters just ahead of this one. Moses writes them all down. And the people, it says, answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So Moses wasn't just saying these things. It wasn't just an oral law. It was a written law. God spoke to Moses. Moses wrote them down, and he spoke them to the people from the writings that they had. And so this is more than just the Ten Commandments. This is, this is the other laws that God gave to them. Not only did they have the laws, but there's something else to be written here. Numbers 33. Numbers 33 <clears throat> says that Moses recorded their starting places as, as they travel through the wilderness for the 40 years. They have their 
starting places recorded according to the journeys by the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting places. So Moses not only recorded the laws of God, but he recorded the travels of his people and the faithfulness of God to them as they went from place to place. So God guided the people, and Moses wrote down his account of that, and that became part of the canon of Scripture in Numbers 33. Another thing that was written down by God's command, look at Exodus 17. And this is the famous story of Israel fighting against Amalek. Maybe you don't remember those people per se, but remember Joshua is there, and he, he fights, and Moses and Aaron and Hur at the top of the hill, and Moses holds his hands up with the staff, and he, he gets tired after a while, and so as long as his arm is up, the Israelites win. As his hand goes down, they start to lose. And so we have that, that famous story here. Verse 30, 13 says, So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So God has told Moses to write down this story, this curse against Amalek as part of a book. And that we see the the judgment verse 16. The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Let's look at Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, after Moses has led the people for many years and he is getting ready to go uh, to heaven, to, to leave the people. Deuteronomy 31 Verse 24 says, It came about when Moses finished writing his, the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. So Moses wrote down the law, the covenant that God had given to them, and it was placed by the Ark as a reminder to them what they were to do and what not to do. Many years later, we've seen God telling people to write in Moses' time. Let's look at Jeremiah's time, and there are many other places we can look. But just by way of wrapping things up here, Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 30. One of the great comforting portions of Scripture. Jeremiah 30, let's start in verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. And he goes on to talk about God's goodness to them. Jeremiah has warned again and again and again about idolatry and how they're going to be carried away in Babylon. But God has comfort for his people. Look at chapter 31. This is a, a beautiful reminder, not just to the people of Israel, but to us as well. And we're so grateful that God commanded Jeremiah to write this down for Jeremiah's uh, people at his time, but also for us, for all time. Verse 31. Uh, 31 of chapter 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, 
although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Remember, we just saw that earlier. God said, here's the covenant. Moses wrote it down, this covenant. The people broke it immediately. They were breaking it as the law was being given. And yet, God said, there's going to be a new covenant, not like that one which they broke, but a different kind. Verse 33, this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon, and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that he have done, declares the Lord. So God here has a promise, not just this set of verses, but through this section. God gave it to Jeremiah as a comfort for Jeremiah, for the people in Jeremiah's day, for the for God's people throughout all, all history. How many times have you read this? Uh, some of you have a Jewish background, most of you are not. But you read this, and you see this promise is not just for the Jews, not just for the Israelites, but this is for us as well. This new covenant that we have, this last portion of our scriptures, was foretold by Jeremiah, and not just foretold, but forewritten for us at God's command that we would read it and be comforted, even in our own day. So God commands not just an oral tradition, but a written tradition of his His word, the canon, the, the measure of what is God's word, what is not, and by doing so, it's preserved throughout the generations. We could also look at Jeremiah 36. I won't dig into that, but you recall this, this story when Jeremiah is told to write down the words of the prophecy. And he writes it down, and, it, uh, and actually Baruch is one who writes it down. Jeremiah speaks, Baruch writes it down, and gives it to the king. The king takes that scroll, he chops it up, throws it into a fire, and that shows his disdain for God's word. If you cut up a scroll given by a prophet from God, that's the same thing as insulting God himself. And so God said to to Jeremiah, write it down again, and I'm going to add more things, more judgments, because of the, the disdain that you showed for me by destroying my word. So when you destroy God's word, you're shaking your fist at God and he will judge you for that. Well, we've talked about the Old Testament canon, that is, what books, and we'll look again in more detail in future weeks, but the idea of the fact that there is a canon, there's a rule, there's a set of books, a set of writings that belong to the Jews, the Israelites, and for all of us, for all time, as God's word. There were other books, of course, written in earlier times that weren't part of God's word. They, they referred to in the Old Testament, but were not canonical. That is, they were not really God's word. Let me just read a few verses here. We don't have time to go in detail. Just listen as I read a few. Joshua 10.13. This is that famous story, when the sun stood still. The sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? 
and the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. So we have the book of Jashar. We have mentioned in Second First Chronicles 29, verse 29. It says, The acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the, the chronicles of Gad the seer. Now, we don't know about all these books. It may be that the Chronicles of Samuel may refer to what we think of as First and Second Samuel. We don't know that for sure. But we have the Chronicles of Nathan the prophet. Remember who Nathan was? He was the one who confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba, among other things. I would love to be able to read Nathan's Chronicles or uh, Gad the seer. We don't know much about him, but maybe Gad has some interesting things to say. But in God's providence, these are not canonical books. They aren't God's word. The Second Chronicles 9.29 mentions the acts of Solomon from first to last are written in the records of Nathan the prophet, again, and in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite and the visions of Iddo the seer. Again, we don't really know much about Ahijah and Iddo, but they wrote down things. They had visions, they had prophecies from God that didn't end up being part of the inspired word of God to be maintained throughout all generations. Second Chronicles 12.15 mentions the records of Shemaiah the prophet and Iddo the seer again. We have 1 Kings 11.41 mentions the book of the Acts of Solomon, just as we have records of many kings and queens throughout history. As these, these monarchies would go on, they would have people recording day by day what happened. <clears throat> and so all those records are lost to us today, but they were there for whoever wrote the, some of these other uh, uh, canonical books, they were able to refer to those as they wrote down what God would ultimately inspire in his word. <clears throat> we also have in 1 Kings fourteen nineteen it mentions the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, and there's also a book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. Now we have our own First and Second Chronicles, but they may not be the same as the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Those are probably more technical, day-to-day re- records of the life of the the kings of Israel and Judah. Sort of what you might call the royal archives. And these are sadly lost to us. And while they weren't inspired, they would have given us fascinating insights into the history of the Old Testament. We can stop there for now. We'll look at at some of these things in more detail later. How specifically did we get the books that we now have in the Old Testament, these 39 books we have in our English Bibles? Any quick questions? I know we're running kind of late. We've also gone kind of quickly. All right, well, let's close the prayer. Father, we thank you for these words from your word. We thank you for the scriptures that were handed down to us. We don't have to rely on words transmitted by mouth to mouth throughout the centuries, wondering what may have actually been said. We have the written word of God from the early times, even in Moses' day, when very few people could even write or read, you recorded this for us, and we thank you for that gift. We thank you for men who are faithful like Moses and, and Jeremiah and others who wrote down what was told to them by your Spirit. We pray that you would help us as we try to walk faithfully with you to take your words carefully, thoughtfully, prayerfully, very seriously to apply them by your grace to our lives that we might become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
In whose name we pray, amen.